Um, so I wanted to think about seasons because uh, I know many of us come from traditions that didn't highlight the season of Advent, the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And so as I was kind of thinking about Advent and how to talk about it, uh, church traditions, uh, traditions that we have within this church and tr- traditions that we're, you know, starting or reviving within this, uh, within our own community. So I thought I would explain and talk a little bit about Advent. Um, I was actually listening to a really helpful conversation with Alexander Shia. I think some of you have read Alexander Shia, but he talks about how the season of Advent uh, is rooted particularly within uh, the season uh, leading up to the winter solstice. So when you think about Christians that were living in the northern hemisphere, the days get really short. It's a season of a lot of darkness, and the lectionary text and the season of Advent develops around the actual physical conditions of the seasons and the weather. So when we think about uh, church traditions and how um, how we find ourselves products of Southern California in 2018. Uh, observing a season of leading up to Christmas, and like last week, you know, we read this really apocalyptic text from from Luke about darkness, and we we can think about the uh, the Christians that were developing these traditions over the course of hundreds of years. Um, they're working within their environment, their physical environment, and most of that took place within um, in the northern hemisphere. So, the texts for Advent uh, take place and are chosen during the cold, dark season that people knew in the northern hemisphere. And then it develops over time, and people observe it all across the world, even people that don't uh, live in the northern, so, northern hemisphere. So I can imagine that people in the southern hemisphere, like Australia, it's like a really awkward experience. Or maybe for us, where we don't have like, we have short days, but we don't have like real cold weather. Um, it's kind of hard for us to remember and get into that frame of mind of kind of an, a more ancient person in Christianity finding these texts really coinciding with their physical environment. So I thought that was just kind of a neat um, contextual framing for how we think about this season leading up to Advent. And then all of this is rooted in the scriptures, our tradition, and then we try to find ways to practically apply uh, the scripture and these traditions into our lives today. You know, what what does it mean for us to be people uh, in the LA area that are trying to find meaning and purpose, guidance, direction, community within this framework of scriptures that were developed so long ago and then have taken shape by all of these Christians throughout history that give us the text that we're going to read this morning. So this morning, uh, we're going to read Luke 3, 1 through 6. Last week, we were further uh, into the Gospel of Luke. Now we're going back, uh, and we're reading uh, Luke 3, 1 through 6. It's uh, in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Uh, I'm reading uh, this morning out of the message. In the 15th year of the rule of Caesar Tiberius, it was while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the ruler of Galilee, his brother Philip the ruler of Eteria, and Trachonantus, Lysanias the ruler of Abilene, which is in Texas. Um, <laughs> this is dumb. That's a dumb joke. Uh, during the chief priesthood of Anna, Annas and uh, Caiaphas. John, Zachariah's son, out in the desert at the time, received a message from God. He went all through the country around the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of life change, leading to the forgiveness of sins, as described in the words of the Isaiah, in the words of Isaiah the prophet. Thunder in the desert, prepare God's arrival. 
Make the road smooth and straight. Every ditch will be filled in, every bump smoothed out, the detour straightened out, all the ruts paved over. Everyone will be there to see the parade of God's salvation. The word of the Lord. So if you were here last week, we've, um, we started the, the theme of the wild and thinking of Advent in the context of what it means to be in the wild. What we'll notice over the course of these four weeks is that all of our texts take on um, the themes of wilderness. And uh, here we have John the Baptist, or here as the uh, Gospel of Luke describes him, just John Zachariah's son, or John son of Zachariah. Uh, So as we think about what it means to be in the wild and what that means for for us individually and us as a community, um, we're going to dive into what what John is, uh, or what the, um, sorry, the the Gospel of Luke is trying to tell us through um, this kind of bizarre text um, that doesn't really, I always think about like who chooses, who chose the lectionary text and like what what they're doing and trying to frame just like six verses here. Um, and it seems like a bizarre, a bizarre text. And I've, I've sat with it all week and I'm just like, I still, um, I'm all up, my head's all over the map on this one. Um, but I want to, I want to camp out a little bit at the beginning in, in the part that we think we might just read over. I think if we come from a, a, a tradition that really uh, puts a lot of emphasis on the on reading the Bible, and you're familiar with sto- Bible stories. I would probably just read over these first few. Yeah, the fifteenth rule is a bunch of names that I can't pronounce. All right, we're good. But I think what the author here is doing is something really important to the entire meaning of what this text um, has for for us today, and what what John is uh, what the Gospel of Luke, the the writer, is really trying to say to his audience there. So what's John's message? Um, his message is the forgiveness of sins, baptism of life change. Um, and Luke sets this scene where it's like, okay, there's this weird guy in the desert in this time of all of these really important people. Okay, here's the governor, here's the president, here's the uh, religious officials, here's all the big wigs, here's all the people in power, and then, oh, by the way, there's this guy just screaming out in the desert about whatever, you know, about forgiveness. It's like, huh? What? How, how are we supposed to really make sense of that? So times are tough, and I think that's one thing that um, would be very obvious to the, to the readers of, uh, or to the hearers of this uh, text originally. We're thinking of 80s, um, early Christian, like Christianity is just starting to form, and this story is being told to this group of early Jesus followers. Um, and they're reminding the, the people that are first hearing this text, you know, in the 15th year of Caesar's rule. And remember who was governor? Maybe you maybe don't remember. It was Pontius Pilate. It was all these people. Um, here are the important figures. But you know what was really important? You know what was really important? There were all these people in power. There were all these governors, really great. But you know what God was doing? God was out in the desert with this guy named John. He was out with this little crazy person named John in the desert. There was a New York Times article this week, maybe you saw it, um, it was entitled, um, Your Tax Dollars Help Starve Children. Did anybody else see this New York Times article? It's an op-ed. And 
it was an article talking about um, the, the war in Yemen right now, which is a US-backed war. Um, we've hopefully seen it in the news uh, you know, lately. But it's a war that's been going on for three years. I know Don has talked about it uh, at church before. And it's been getting some publicity because uh, there was a girl who uh, someone took a photo of a couple of weeks ago. Um, Amal Hussein, this girl, um, seven years old, and this picture was taken um, a few weeks ago, I believe. No, it was, it was early November when it was published, but um, here's Amal uh, in, I think, late October, early November, um, and she's, she's starving to death, and 85,000 85, children since the war started have starved to death in, in Yemen, and this is a U.S. This is a U.S.-funded war, and the writer of the Zapes is basically saying, you know, all of our tax dollars are going to fund, in a small way, this war that is essentially starving children in Yemen. Uh, and this photo got so much press because it's a, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking photo, and, um, and Amal died this week, so there was a, a renewal of, um, of news coverage ar around her, and her, her mom... Um, in, the, in the most quotes that I could find, just said this, my heart is broken. Uh, experts say that there's 12 million more uh, people that are at risk for starvation in Yemen right now, 12 million. It's three times the population of Los Angeles, if you think of it in that, in that way. 12 million people are, are at risk um, of starving to death. In this war, that is, is backed by the tremendous force that is our government and military. Um, in other words, we could prevent this from happening if we wanted to. We could prevent this from happening if we wanted to. We could, it could stop virtually tomorrow if we wanted to. Um, a massive coalition to stop funding towards uh, Saudi Arabia. And the U.S. could place heavy, heavy sanctions. I mean, we won't go into all the political ramifications of it, but the U.S. could place uh, heavy sanctions on Saudi Arabia until they stopped the war. They could just squeeze Saudi Arabia until they, I mean, that would be, obviously there's a lot of politics in that, but it's possible. I mean, as the, as the most powerful nation and the most violent military the world has ever seen, we have a tremendous power in this country to create conditions um, that are devastating for millions of people. And um, we, we just go about our lives and we don't realize it, and, 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 that's, and that's fine uh, to a certain degree. But in the, in the context of this text today, I couldn't help this week, um, after seeing a lot of coverage on, on Yemen, of uh, think if perhaps if Luke 3 was set in 2018, it might read something like this. In the second year of the rule of Donald Trump, when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House and Mitch McConnell, Senator from Kentucky, when there were many wealthy ministers and preachers and high priests throughout the United States, Out in the desert, fill in the blank. Out in the desert, fill in the blank. Where is God moving and working today? I think it's a question that this text calls us to wrestle with. If this text says that 
in the time of Caesar of Tiberias, or Caesar Tiberius, out in the desert, John, thunder in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Where is God working today? Uh, there are a lot of organizations um, doing great work uh, in Yemen right now to, to call uh, for the end of the war. People are calling. Uh, this is one of the most, they're saying that, um, I, just reading about this week, that it, it has the potential to be the most devastating humanitarian crisis if it's not curbed pretty soon um, in our lifetime, or the people that are working uh, on the front lines of this crisis, um, that it, it could be the worst, it's stacking up to be the worst humanitarian crisis since they've started working in that field. Um, a couple of organizations, just in case anybody's uh, interested, uh, International Rescue Mission, CARE, Save the Children, are all, um, are all doing uh, work to end the suffering there and to proclaim the end of the war. And this week is about peace in the Advent season, so um, it's almost uh, devastating how, um, how, obvious, how obvious it is that we don't have uh, peace in our world right now. Um, Luke makes the announcement in this text that God's movement in the world doesn't come from the most powerful people in the world. That God's movement is somewhere out stirring in the desert. In the 15th year, the rule of Tiberius, there was a guy in the desert, and he received a message from God. Advent recognizes the pain and suffering of the world. It doesn't ignore it. But it calls us into the desert to hear God, to hear from God. And uh, uh, honest confession, I love Christmas. I, I love Christmas time. I love the cheesy movies. I love the, the music. I, I love driving around, uh, seeing Christmas lights on houses. I don't like shopping. <laughs> you won't find me at the mall ever. Gosh, can't stand the mall. Uh, I won't even go to the grocery store <laughs> most of the time. I can't, I can't stand stores. Um, so I love Christmas time and all the, all the nostalgia that it brings. But I think as we're thinking about this, this text in, in preparations, I think even at its best, Christmas preparations can be a distraction um, from God's call for, to what's happening in the world right now. Does that make sense? What's happening in the wild? What's happening on the margins? What's happening in real people's lives? Who, who is suffering? Uh, the God of, of, of the Bible is always with those that are suffering, always with those that are in pain. And, uh, you know, in the season of Advent, we, we use the metaphor of being in the wild, being in the wilderness. Where would we find God today? Where would we find God today? John's preaching and announcing this word. Usually it's translated salvation. Did Eugene Peterson use salvation? I think he used the salvation as well. Yeah, salvation. Um, I think maybe it's more keen to uh, what we would consider liberation today. Uh, I think sometimes we think of salvation as... Uh, uh, the Christian sense of being like saved from your sins so you can go to heaven. Uh, I think what this is really more pointing towards, we would be thinking about liberation, liberating people from oppressive conditions. Um, I forget who I was listening to this week, um, but I think it was a New Testament scholar that was, no, it was an Old Testament scholar that I think that was talking about how um, John, would, or the, the gospel writer in this, in this text would have been writing um, looking, since it's a quote from Isaiah, talking about uh, 
connecting the Isaiah text in the liberation from exile that the author and the authors of Isaiah were talking about, being brought back from exile, being rescued in, in life, you know, people that are suffering tremendous like tremendously bad conditions while in exile, and then being liberated back into the wholeness, the dignity, the fullness of life. That was a, um, that was a real thing happening in real people's lives. Um, as opposed to um, a salvation in the sense of uh, a heavenly salvation. Um, so when we think about what John is, uh, the author, I keep saying John. I can, how many times? That's like five times I've done that today. What the Gospel of uh, Luke is doing here in the context of John the Baptist is connecting that piece in Isaiah to the early Christians in their desire and longing for liberation during a, a tough time after the fall of um, Jerusalem. MLK um, references this text uh, in his I Have a Dream speech, and I want to read just a, a little bit, because when we think about liberation, it's, Advent is a season of longing, of, of knowing the world is not right, but longing that we can take part with God in putting the world to rights. And so MLK in his I Have a Dream speech, which I hope we've all heard at some point, he ends it with, with talking about um, part of this verse. He says, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith... We will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into the beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that, one, knowing that we will be free one day. Liberation. Liberation. So where are we missing the Spirit of God in the world today? There's a call for preparation in this text, prepare the way of the Lord. And like MLK says, uh, it's both. It's, this, it's turning this world into uh, just maybe a stone of hope, that we're not there yet. We can't even maybe imagine a day where we will be there where everything will be made right, where, where we will experience a peace, where every person living on the face of the earth has the opportunity to live a full life. You know, I, I honestly don't know what to do. On, I mean, we know, that, uh, we know that children die every day from dire circumstances and preventable di diseases, and many of us have traveled to countries where we've seen a lot of these uh, conditions firsthand. Uh, but sometimes when you see a photo like the one of Amal, it hits you with such a force that you're reminded that we still in 2018 don't live in a world where everyone has the opportunity to even grow up. And when we think about God's liberation, when we think about uh, the movement and the spirit of God in this text in Luke, not coming from 
name at the top, name at the top, name at the top. And our temptation is today is to always just replace the names at the top, the names at the top. Like we, we work hard a lot of times to replace the names at the top with better names at the top that we would like to see at the top. But we're reminded as Christians that God does not work from the top. That all that is fine and well and good, but God's movement, the spirit of God, is with people in the desert, is with the people that are actually suffering. It's with the people that we don't understand why they don't have a shot at life. But we're also called to make the preparations to be that liberation as well. It's both. So can we see that the way of the Lord is with the children in Yemen or the families suffering on the border? That the truth of ultimate reality, or as Jesus would say, the kingdom of God, is that God works in the desert. Not through systems of power, but through voices crying out in the wilderness. It's in those places where the way of the Lord is prepared. One that will take all that is crooked and rough in the world and in us and will make it straight and smooth and right and full of peace. God is changing the world. That is our stone of hope. God is changing the world through you and through me Slowly and surely, that is the Advent hope, both knowing that it hasn't come, and we're, we're so reminded of that, but that it is coming towards wholeness, towards nonviolence, towards more grace, towards more love. Julie's mom gave me this hat. I was wondering if I was going to get back to that. Uh, we made hats yesterday for, uh, for Christmas. All the kids came. They could decorate the hats. And she wrote John 3.16 on this hat. And she said, isn't that the reason for the season? And I said something along, well, actually, you know, it's Advent season, Julie's mom. And, you know, Susan, we haven't gotten quite to Advent yet. And she was, you know, annoyed with me, as I would be annoyed with me. Um, and I was thinking, um, you know what? Julie's mom was right it is the reason for the season, um, because John 3.16, maybe you've heard of it, it you know, says something like, God so loved the world. It begins that way. And uh, the Greek word there for world is the word cosmos. Cosmos. And then I started thinking about the text today and, and thinking about how you know what, she's actually right, because it's pointing towards all of this cosmos being put back together. It begins in your life, but it involves the entire cosmos, and that is our Advent hope. But damn, it's hard to see. Gosh, it's so hard to see. Um, I don't have any, like you know, pithy, I, 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 I honestly, it's, it's a text, and I mean, it's a week in which um, there are no, there are no answers, um, there are no um, 
short, there are no short-term answers. Um, when, when a child dies at the age of seven, there's no way to explain that, right? There's no way to explain that. When we know people are being um, put in harm's way um, year, on, year in and year out um, for no good reason, and we're all followers of the Prince of Peace, um, it's really hard to see this Advent promise. Spirit, God, Christ, consciousness, humanity are all being pulled towards this promise of peace. This promise of peace that recognizes the dignity of every person, the divine within, beyond previous boundaries or structures, um, or systems of oppression, ways that we divide each other. So when we're vividly reminded of the deep injustices, children starving to death because of our choices, since there are no answers in these moments, only painful reminders that our world does not have the peace that we so desperately long for. May we be reminded that God is with the vulnerable, the poor, the enslaved, those robbed of their dignity, those trapped by their own mistakes, those everyone is offered the life-changing liberation, grace, forgiveness, restoration, that is in Christ and moving towards the restoration of all things. Beyond what we can see sometimes in our own lives, beyond what we can feel in our own hearts, that this is the mysterious work of God taking place in the world and the promises of peace are promises of peace. And we are called to, into the desert, to make way for these promises to be realized. So even though we may be in positions of power based on the country that we live in, maybe we've been complicit in the pain of others, we too can be brought into this love and grace that is continuing in our world. And it's one step, it's one step, it's one step. Prepare the way of the Lord. We can take one step. Maybe, maybe this week we can take one step. Um, when I was listening to Alexander Shia, who was talking about the history of Lent, um, he had mentioned that something that he does in his house is he sets up the, the manger scene, and then he takes out the baby Jesus until, until Christmas. He takes out the baby Jesus, and in the meantime, he tries to introduce, um, it's a, it sits as a reminder of the coming promises and what's not yet realized, but he tries to use that emptiness as a symbol for something that he should integrate into his life. Maybe it's a spiritual practice. Maybe it's a phone call to someone that we need to reconcile with. But he takes one step, one step, one step. I like this phrase, every ditch, every bump. I don't know why. It's maybe it's just because it's poetic. Every ditch, every bump. In the text that um, is from Isaiah, it says, you know, every road smooth and straight, every ditch, every bump, every ditch, every bump. 
We live in a world that has a lot of ditches and a lot of bumps. We're very much aware of that. But maybe the promise this morning is every ditch, every bump, every ditch, every bump, it will be made smooth. Every ditch, every bump, every ditch, every bump. Let's pray. Loving God, uh, often we look around our lives, we look around our world, and we don't, um, we don't understand why things are the way they are, why we um, have to suffer um, tremendous pain, whether it's the loss of a loved one, um, whether it is uh, battling an illness, um, whether it's worrying about all of the injustices that we see every day on the news, whether it's injustices of um, people on the border just trying to seek asylum, or it's children in Yemen um, starving because of lack of access to, to resources. Um, when we don't have good answers, you promise and call us into the desert that you will make smooth every ditch and every bump, and then you also call us to make smooth every ditch and every bump. So may we take one step this week. May we start something. May you stir something within us uh, for us to take one more step um, towards your world of peaceful reconciliation that you promise. So when we don't believe it, when we don't see it, and uh, when we think all hope is lost, remind us that there is a stone of hope somewhere in here. Amen.